Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Famine is almost always associated with armed conflict. As a consequence of civil war, Yemen and Ethiopia today are facing acute food emergencies. In Madagascar, there is no war, yet thousands of people in the southern part of the country are experiencing famine-like conditions. Over a million more are considered to be on the brink of famine. The crisis in southern Madagascar is a direct consequence of climate change. This region has experienced successive droughts, the rainy season is shorter, the lean season is longer, and subsistence farmers are unable to plant their crops. This is widely considered to be the world's first climate change-induced famine. On the line with me to discuss the link between climate change and the famine-like conditions in southern Madagascar is Mandipa Machacha human rights researcher at Amnesty International's Southern Africa Regional Office. She authored a report released by Amnesty about the climate change-induced food crisis in Madagascar and its impact on the human rights of people living there. We kick off with a discussion about Madagascar more broadly and the impact of climate change on the island before having a broader conversation about the brutal intersection of climate change and famine in southern Madagascar. I've been wanting to do an episode on this topic for quite some time. Big thank you to Mandipa Machacha for speaking with me, and I will post a link to her report on the webpage, globaldispatchespodcast.com, and in the show notes of this episode. And today's episode was supported in part from a grant from the Carnegie Corporation of New York to showcase African voices and peace and security issues in Africa. To view other episodes in that series, please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with Mandipa Machacha of Amnesty International. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Madagascar is an island nation which is located in southern Africa. It's just off the coast of Mozambique, off the eastern coast in the Indian Ocean. It is, I think, the fourth largest island in the world and has the largest coastline in Africa because it's so big. It has a population of around 27 million inhabitants and approximately 65% of the people in Madagascar live in rural areas. It's one of the poorest countries in the world. It has the highest number of people who are living below the poverty line, which is 
1.9 dollars a day and it has one of the largest populations of people who are undernourished. Madagascar is plagued with many issues because of its geographical location in the tropics it's exposed to a lot of tropical cyclones heavy rainfall events, and as well as droughts, because, you know, rainfall and droughts are kind of like sisters. They come hand in hand. But it has very unique biodiversity. It's very famous for lemurs. There was that movie, Madagascar. <laughs> Doing research yes. on Madagascar ahead of speaking with you was very difficult because of that movie, I must say. Always one of the first <laughs> things that popped up. Yeah, you don't think that people live there. I think a long time before even, it's part of my region because I'm from Southern Africa, I'm from Botswana. And even in my region, it's a very mystical, kind of very special place that, you know, we always think about really with a lot of reference from the movie. You kind of think like it's just a place where only animals live that very few people live. But it's plagued with, you know, natural disasters, political instability. They've had a rise in absolute poverty in the past couple of years, a lot of limited growth, limited economic growth. And it has a very, very high percentage of people who are considered to be poor. And the population of people considered to be poor is actually getting higher than in the 1990s. So things, unfortunately, appear to be getting worse there. Within Madagascar, what distinguishes the south of Madagascar from the rest of the country? The Grand Sud, I believe, is the term used in your report, the Deep South. So I was just setting a scene about the general Madagascar. And then I was going to go into Le Grand Sur, which is the area in Madagascar, which is called the Deep South. And in this area, it is now even worse than I think the statistics that I've just told you. So this particular area, they are huge, even though poverty is just general and quite widespread in Madagascar, they have huge regional disparities. Le Grand Sur has an estimated 91% of the population who are living below the poverty line. So much, much higher percentage of poverty than the national average which means that you know, most of the poor are concentrated in, the, in this particular area. And lots of families with many, many children. We had people who had between five to 15 children. So this kind of also kind of drives them a little bit more into poverty as well. Lots of female-headed households in, in a relatively patriarchal kind of societies. And so this area is, generally has quite concerning development indicators. They have a lower rates of education, lower rates of healthcare, social services, healthcare seeking behavior. I mean, it's separated into three larger areas, and then those areas have disparities amongst themselves. There's some areas, you know, which are even poorer than the regional average. And as a result of that, some areas are feeling the impacts of this drought a little bit worse than even other areas in Le Grand Sioux. But Le Grand Sioux itself is generally a historically very underprivileged, under-resourced region. It is politically ignored by the government, which is one of the reasons why it is so vulnerable to the impacts of climate change and, and not as resilient as you know possibly other parts of the country. Unfortunately, a development indicator to show this. The number of children is much lower than the national average. I think 44% of 15-year-olds in the Deep South have some education where it's 75% in the national average. So you have this region that has historically been marginalized and layered on top of that is this drought. Can you explain when did this drought start? How has the drought sort of manifested itself over the years since the drought began? I think for us to begin, it's it's better to just say from the beginning that droughts in Madagascar are chronic. And I think if anybody has been following Madagascar over the past couple of years, this is not the first that can be heard about this drought. Droughts in Madagascar are chronic. They've been happening for a very long, long time. And they even form part of the collective memory of the region. It is just, you know, generally 
what happens in that particular region. However, this particular drought has been very, very severe because it follows almost three, four successive years of straight drought. And so it's kind of like a piling up on each other. Because previously when there was a drought, the rain would come and then kind of things would stabilize and people would be able to restock their food supplies and then get on with it. But this year it has completely, like the the three, four years of drought have completely wiped out harvest because of the lack of anything that's been able to grow. The soil is now, it's hard, it's, it's very arid and it's very difficult to grow anything on it. And this particular drought, which has just affected them from November till February this year, because their rainy season is about October to, they start planting in maybe around October. The rainy season will start October, follow through about March, and then that's when harvesting will happen. But this recent drought from 2020-21 was from November. And I think the rains only started falling in about March. And by that time, people had either deplete their supplies because what happens is every time there's a bit of rain that comes, they sow. And then if if there isn't enough rain, then those things don't grow. Mm. So they were doing that repeatedly over the months. And then in March, when the rains had just started coming, many of them didn't even have any supplies to stock. And they also, it was pretty much the end of the rainy season and now going into like the new lean season. Mm. So this drought has been really bad in terms of scale. Double the amount of people were affected by the drought this year than they were last year. I think quadrupled the amount of children in this particular area than the normal five-year average were admitted for life-saving malnutrition treatment. And it's just been basically kind of like a, a building up of sorts. And I think the thing really is that we are now starting to look, and, and the UN has said many, many times that it is this aggravated and it's continuing in a way that it never used to before because of climate change. And because of the impacts of climate change, because previously when there was a drought, it would, it would end and then you know they'd get back to normal. But this one does not appear to be ending. And the only thing that's different now than what was before is the impacts of climate change. When you were researching your report, what did you hear from people in southern Madagascar who were affected by this drought upon drought? And what did they tell you about how they were coping or not? Well, the stories are really, really, really dire, Mark. I mean, it's really as bad as it gets. A lot of people in Madagascar have not even heard of climate change, so they don't even understand what's happening. This is just not what they're used to in terms of their lives. Many of these people are subsistence farmers, either people who are also working in fisheries as well. So they need to plant to eat, and they primarily eat rain-fed crops, which are reliant obviously on rain falling. So the testimonials were just consistent in many of the areas that we visited. We visited about 17 villages, spoke to about 82 people, and the stories were the same. The rain is not falling anymore. Our fields are dry and, you know, we're hungry. Our children have nothing to eat and it has affected them possibly in the worst way possible. I'm not sure if you've had time to, to kind of delve into the reports, but it's, we really go in detail into the human rights violations that the people in this region are suffering. And they go right up to, you know, the right to life. We, are, we have seen testimonials from people who said that either they knew of people who died from hunger or their own children had died from hunger as a result of this drought. One person told us that Five people in the same household one day died as a result of what they said was hunger. You can't really get comprehensive statistics on drought-related deaths or hunger-related deaths, but from the information that we got from people, there are people who have died of hunger. But 
it goes on. I mean, there's wide-scale violations on the right to food. People have said that many people have not eaten in a very long time. When we did the research in May, at the time, I think the statistics were that just over 1.1 million people, so 1.14 million people were on the brink of famine. So this is severe food insecurity, like so severe hunger. And 14,000 of those people were in what the IPC calls famine-like conditions, which means that they are actually within a famine. It's just that famine is an area declaration, so a certain amount of people in a particular area need to be experiencing famine-like conditions for it to be declared a famine. But there are people currently living in conditions which are Mm famine-like. And this number was expected to double in the end of October. So, And I'm hearing now reports saying that there are 30,000 people who are basically in famine Mm -hmm. as we speak right now. So this is people who have absolutely no idea where their next meal is coming from. Absolutely no idea. They don't know when their children are going to eat next. The drought has also kind of taken away other forms of food that they used to rely on, like cactus, because it's not growing there anymore because it's just like so dry and barren. So they're relying on cactus leaves and relying on clay and other non-nutritious sources to eat because just so that they can get through the day. The famine-like conditions you describe are more typically associated with armed conflict. Famine usually just doesn't happen in places where there's not armed conflict. Yet in Madagascar, there is not armed conflict right now. So what is preventing the government of Madagascar and the international community from providing the requisite humanitarian relief to get the people of southern Madagascar through this drought? That really is the question on everybody's lips because this report is coming now, but a flash appeal for this drought was made by the UN in January. So, I mean, it was already declared a humanitarian emergency in January. So people have essentially known about this. There's various kind of challenges in accessing people in the Deep South, mainly because the areas are quite rural, lack of infrastructure, very bad roads. The WFP is active on the ground, for instance, but they can't reach certain areas. And so sometimes people have to walk six, seven, ten hours in order for them to get to nutrition sites. And so that is the structural political issue about this being a neglected area, a marginalized area by its own government, which makes it difficult to actually reach. COVID-19 also added an extra layer of difficulty because of the restrictions in movements and the closing of borders. It took a very long time for aid to get into the country, which kind of increased the lead time you know, between the aid coming into the country and it actually getting to people. But in general, the biggest issue, I mean, amongst the structural issues of actually getting to people as well as COVID-19 is that there just isn't enough money coming in. And this is a really large part of the appeal that this report is making. There was a flash appeal that was done at the beginning of the year, and I think it was repeated halfway through the year. Some money has come in nowhere near enough what's needed. And so we're really, really calling on the international community and considering this is what they would call the first climate change famine. It has been contributed to by everybody in this world. You and me have all contributed to what's happening right now in Madagascar and wealthier countries, especially more, because, you know, you know, G20 countries are responsible for 20 to 80 percent of GHG emissions. So they are really in a moral 
position. They have a moral obligation to respond to this crisis, but also they're in a financial position too as well. I mean, they're countries who actually have the money to be able to do this. So we're not really sure what's stopping them. I think Madagascar, as I said, is quite prone to droughts. I think people maybe at the back of their mind just think that it's going to go away that the way that it usually does. But the very different thing about this year's drought and the droughts that have happened previously is that there's something unnatural about this drought. And so we kind of expect it to make the, the, the same natural progressions that the previous droughts did before, because this one is in many ways impacted by climate change. So it could not end. Right now, mm-hmm. it's supposed to be the beginning of the rainy season. We are all, we're not sleeping. Everybody, everybody is just holding their thumbs, waiting to hear that, that the rain is going to fall in Madagascar. If it doesn't rain now, and they go into yet another lean season in February, that is now we are talking one million people in famine, not on the brink of it. And this just speaks to the profound inequities that result from climate change. You have Madagascar, responsible for almost no greenhouse gas emissions, bearing the brunt of climate change, yet wealthier countries that have the ability to at least mitigate the humanitarian fallout from the climate change greenhouse gases that we've pumped into the atmosphere for centuries are not ponying up the money to at least support people on the ground. Your report kind of uses human rights language to help sort of understand those inequities in ways that I think are very helpful. I think I've said the word diabolical 50 times since the release of the report on Wednesday. Every time I'm speaking to somebody, it is unthinkable, Mark that a country which emits less than 0.01% of global emissions is on the front line of the climate crisis change. And for so many reasons, because of the place that it's, it's just generally vulnerable to climate change because of where it's geographically located, but also, as we've discussed, the various political and socioeconomic issues which amplify the impacts of climate change. Because it's quite a, a mystical kind of subject. You know, we're trying to now demystify it to try and make it hit home because I think far too long the narrative around it has been it's something that's happening in the future. It's something that's going to happen in generations from now. And I mean, it still doesn't make it any less unconscionable that we're destroying the planet for people in the future. But it's also very incorrect to think like that because climate change is affecting people now and it's affecting the people who have the least resilience to it because we have been hearing all of these strange weather patterns, these extreme weather events happening all over the world, but they're happening in countries which are able to rebuild, who are able to be resilient to the impacts of climate change. So in addition to the aid that I spoke about earlier, that the immediate humanitarian food aid, as well as water for consumption and household use that we really need to be ramped up in the south of Madagascar, the wealthier countries also really need to step up in terms of providing support, your know, financial, technical for Madagascar to increase its climate adaptation and climate mitigation strategies. Because unfortunately, and we hate to think about it because we always want to think that things can be changed, but there's a certain amount of damage and climate change that has been locked in at this point. So for the next couple of years, we're going to be experiencing the results of our actions for the past maybe 10, 20, 40 years. And so Malagasy people need to be given the tools to be resilient or to your mitigation and adaptation strategies to be able to be resilient because the changes are going to start happening. It's now up to us to figure out how they're going to hold or how they're going to cope under these changes because of this crisis, which we've all contributed to. But also, even bigger than that, and that's the elephant in the room conversation, it's sometimes also a bit even easier to ask for money than to ask for the real big ask, which is that people need to reduce 
their global emissions. They need to start taking up more ambitious indices in order for us to keep below a 1.5 global rise, which is the, now the scientific target that says that if we get past this, then there's just going to be chaos. You know, more deaths are going to happen as a result of climate change. More health issues are going to be. Basically, public health that we've done in the past 50 years is going to be reversed as a result of climate change if we don't keep below this 1.5. And that's what wealthier countries, if they really want to show commitment to the climate crisis, they need to put not only their money, but also their actions where their mouth is. Money is important, but also the long-term solution here is for countries to take much more ambitious emission reduction schedules, because without that, I mean, you can only adapt and mitigate for so long. Well, thank you so much for your time. The report was very helpful. Uh, thank you. I'll post a link to it as well on the website. Thank you so much for speaking to us. I also maybe just wanted to end off by saying the recommendations, the general recommendations that Amnesty has made. I mean, there's the long recommendations that we have at the end of the report, but then we've got some very succinct recommendations ahead of the COP next week. And the first is that we really hope that the international community at COP26 commits to ambitious and human rights consistent emission reduction targets to keep us under the global 1.5 temperature rise. I think you saw in the most recent report that was handed by the UN, they said, if we keep going with the reduction schedules that countries have right now, we're going to get to 2.7%, I think, by 2030, which is not where we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be below 1.5. And then the second is to commit to rapidly phasing out fossil fuels rather than relying on offsetting measures that delay climate action and negatively impact on human rights. Obviously, countries who are in a position to be able to. And then also to put in this global mechanism to support people whose rights have been affected by wealthy governments. And you know, these governments must pay money through new and additional funding, which is not subject to repayment. So not loans, like more grants that are, in, that are related to climate finance. And also because, you know, climate change is like this, you know, as I said, there's really not much that a lot of people know about it. And as I said, a lot of people in Madagascar don't even know what it is right now, even though their lives depend on it. So the fourth recommendation is really about ensuring rights to information and participation for all people in relation to climate-related decision-making at all levels. So just demystifying the topic, understanding the impacts of it right now and in the future, and how people can hold their governments accountable so that they're able to protect themselves from this beast that we've created. Well, thank you so much, Mandipa. Thank you, Mark. I hope you have a good afternoon. Big thank you to Mandeepa Machacha for speaking with me. And this conversation is being released in the midst of COP26 in Scotland. And hopefully uh, some of the delegates there will take this conversation to heart as they decide the action steps they will take to reduce the impact of climate change on places like southern Madagascar. And a quick disclaimer that the opinions expressed in this conversation belong solely to those of us who express them. And we'll see you next time. Bye.